Folks, we are almost there. Two little old sermons in First Timothy, and we will be done. We'll do the first half of chapter 6 today, and then we'll finish next Sunday morning. And we will have been through this whole letter, which I think has been of great benefit to our church and to where we are right now. Uh, lots of good stuff here. As we look at chapter 6 today, the first 10 verses have some seemingly unrelated things. It looks kind of random when you first look at it. Uh, so we've got some stuff dealing with, with slaves or servants and their relationships with their masters, followed by yet another warning about false teaching. Uh, and then finally, some talk about being content and some talk about money, right, which is everybody's favorite topic on a Sunday morning is to talk about money uh, and to get personal. Um, so, But the longer I wrestled with these three things, the less unrelated they seemed to me. And I think that they are really all related to the last one in this issue of contentment. Are we content? Are you content? That's a good question. And i got to tell you, in a home filled with small children, contentment is not an infrequent topic of conversation. Because it's always just one more and you fill in the blank. Right? Just one more video game. Right? Just one more show on Netflix. Well, I guess that one could be an adult one too. That's not just the kids. All right, just one more piece of candy. Just one more friend to come over and play. You know, when is it ever enough? And so a lack of contentment in children can be frustrating at times. But a lack of contentment in adults can be quite dangerous. There's a lot riding on our ability to be content. We'll see this morning from this passage, even the glory of God is riding on our ability to be content. The health of the church, even our very lives. So I hope that piques your interest a little bit for these ten verses. Let's turn our attention to them if you're able. I'd ask that you stand for the reading of Scripture. These are the very words of God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. May God add his blessing to the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, would you help us uh, yet again? Uh, We are in constant need of help, and you are a constant provider. You're faithful, uh, and you will answer this request that we ask of you because you long for us to know you, you long for us to know Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures and he's, re- he's revealed in this glorious gospel. So Holy Spirit, come and open our understanding, our eyes, and our ears that we might be changed and that Jesus Christ might be exalted and lifted up. And when he's lifted up, he might draw men and women to himself. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So three questions for us to consider from this passage this morning, and they're in an outline in your worship folder. And you may notice I've made the outline a little more detailed this week. Um, Maybe that's helpful. You can give me some feedback on that. Is it helpful? Is it not? Or does it just take up your note-taking space and it gets in your way? So let me know. But here's the three questions. Uh, Are we content? Are we content in our circumstances? Are we content with the gospel? And are we content to live simply? Let's start with the first one. Are we content in our circumstances? And there's an underlying question here, I think. Do I really believe that God is in control, that he's loving, and that he's good? That's the real question about being content in our circumstances. Because honestly, life can be hard, right? I don't know that I could look at anybody in this congregation right now that hasn't had or is not having an experience with the difficulty of life and how hard it can be. Right? We're dealing with the unexpected, we're dealing with the tragic, we're dealing with chronic illness, we're dealing with family problems, employment problems, financial... Like the list really just goes on and on. And so Paul is addressing folks this morning who are in a really hard circumstance. Right? So the first two verses of this passage are about slavery. Oh boy. Um, okay, so... Passages about slavery, especially Paul's, can really be Pandora's boxes. Really because of how they've been abused and misused to try to make the Bible say a bunch of things that it doesn't really say. And so I don't want to make this a sermon on slavery because it's not a passage ultimately about slavery, but I don't think that it would be very pastoral to come across a passage like this and not to at least address it briefly. All right, so I want to make it as brief as possible and hopefully helpful for you. All right, because the problem arises with a, with, a, with a couple of verses like this where Paul gives some instruction about slavery and about the relationship between slaves and masters. And that people say, well, he gave some instruction, but he didn't call for the practice to stop. So he must be okay with it. 
he must be approving of slavery. Right? And, and that kind of, of thinking has got numerous problems with it. And the first problem for our context is, right, when you and I see slavery and think of slavery, right, we're thinking of our own context, and we're thinking of what went on here in the 18th and 19th centuries, right, which is an incredibly different thing to what Paul would have had in his mind when he spoke of slavery, when he spoke of bond servants, because this word that you've got in verse 1, your translations will have it translated a bunch of different ways, either as simply slaves or as bond servants. But the fact of the matter is, in Paul's day, to be a slave was almost always the result of an economic hardship, or it could also be the result of war, right? being, being a captive from war. Right? And so folks were often enslaved in order to pay off their debts. But even in that enslavement, they were making money, they were whittling down the debt that they owed, and they were eventually freed. Right? Uh, very different from what went on uh, in our land, unfortunately. Right? So, so that's the first problem with this thinking that, oh, well, Paul must be okay with slavery. Well, even if he was, right, it's a, you just can't even compare the two. Right. Even if he was approving of what was going on in the first century, quite unlike what we're naturally thinking of when we hear slavery. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. The second thing is I'm not so sure that Paul approved of even what was going on then. Right? Because he's, everything that he teaches, if you look at the whole of Paul, is undermining the very foundation upon which slavery existed in the first place. Right? The worth and the dignity of, of people created in God's image, the way that the gospel eliminates every distinction that we would try to erect, um, that in Christ there is now neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. And Paul really goes on to show just how the relationships that the gospel creates are just antithetical to slave relationships, right? He even wrote a little, one of the shortest letters that he ever wrote to to a Christian slaveholder named Philemon, right? Just trying to show him that, all right, so the natural outworkings of the gospel, (laughs) this doesn't work anymore, right? You're brothers, right? Which is what he's mentioning even in our passage this morning. Now, the question comes, if Paul really didn't approve of slavery then why not take the opportunity, even in these verses, or every time that he mentions it, to call for its abolition, to call for its end? And here's just my opinion, right? I think he doesn't call for an end to slavery in every instance that he mentions it because he's got bigger fish to fry, right? And so here's where my little rabbit trail on slavery merges back with the path that we find ourselves in today, that we find ourselves in today, the context. Paul's got bigger fish to fry. He's got up and running in his mind two things at all times. Two things that you and I need to have as well. He's mindful of two realities. Right? There's a here and now reality in this moment. 
and there's a reality that's yet to come. And he's mindful of both of those things. He's mindful that the reality of slavery, yes, it was a bad problem. Let's not whitewash it. Right? Even if it was just this indentured servitude because of economics. Right? Even if it was just that, that's still a terrible thing. Right? That means you were bankrupt. And you had to enslave yourself to pay off your debt. Nobody aspires to that. Nobody wants that. That's terrible. But as bad as that problem was, it was a temporary problem. And so Paul's got this other line of thinking going on too. All right, here's a temporary problem, but there is also an eternal problem. And as bad as it would be to be enslaved in this life, how much worse to be enslaved for all eternity. Slaves of sin and of death. And so I think Paul's got bigger fish to fry. We got big problems. But a lot of our problems are temporary problems. And bad though they may be, they pale in comparison with a problem that we could face for eternity. And so our eternal perspective is what's key to getting through even the hardest of our hard problems and situations and circumstances. Because they are temporary. They will one day come to an end, but we have another problem that's not temporary. So I want you to see this from from verses 1 and 2. So let's look again at verses 1 and 2 carefully. And let's see where this eternal perspective comes into play. Look there in in, in verse 2. We'll we'll cover both of these, but they'll be a little backwards. Look at verse 2 first. Because you've got this two realities going on at the same time. There is this reality that there is a slave and a master relationship. That's here and now. But Paul's also referencing the fact that, hey, you guys are brothers. Right? So right now the relationship's all messed up, slave and master. But for, for all eternity, you're brothers if you're both trusting the Lord Jesus and his gospel. So already Paul is thinking in terms of these two realities. Now look at what's at stake at the end of, of verse 1. All right. There's something at stake here. If these Christian bondservants, slaves, however it is translated in, in your copy, if they don't show honor and respect, here's what's at stake. The name of God and the teaching being reviled. Y'all, the glory of God and of his gospel is at stake in each and every one of our hard circumstances. Do you realize that? That's weighty, I know. 
it, it feels like the, the pressure is on, right? For the watching world around us. That know that we claim to be Christians, right? The glory of God and of His gospel is at stake in our hard circumstances. So, now in your mind, if you will, put these two things together. Okay? So there's this eternal perspective that recognizes that what we see here and now isn't all that is. There is another reality, an eternal reality. So we've got this eternal perspective. All right? And we've got this notion of the glory of God being at stake in our hard circumstances. And so here's how I think those two things fit together. If we say that we trust Him for our greatest eternal need, how can we not trust Him in the here and now? Right? If we've put all our eggs in the basket of trusting the gospel to take care of our biggest, greatest, longest lasting need that we will ever face, how then can we not trust Him with our admittedly hard but temporary circumstances? There's a verse in Romans that I just keep going back to over and over and over again in my mind, and it just helps me so much personally to make sense of hard things right but then also to try to help others to make sense of hard things and that's Romans 8:32 it says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him I memorized it in the NIV sorry graciously give us all things right there's a great logical thought here if he's given the absolute most that he could give to take care of the biggest problem that we could ever face, then how does that not put everything else in perspective? Now, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't take away the pain and the hurt and the confusion But man, if we can just hang on to that truth, it sure does put things into perspective. He pulled out all the stops to take care of our eternal problem. Everything else is chump change to him. Everything else pales in comparison to cost and difficulty This is what allows us to be content, even in the hardest of circumstances. This is the thing that allows us to be content, even in situations we are, where we are naturally far from content. The same sovereign and good and loving God that can be trusted for eternity can be trusted for tomorrow as well. All right, that was the longest one. These next two are a little shorter. Are we content with the gospel? 
So Paul's going to take one more go at the false teachers here before wrapping up his letter to Timothy. It's like he just can't let it go. He just keeps hammering. If there is a different doctrine. If there is a different doctrine. If, you know, it's like he thinks the gospel is a big deal or something. That it really matters. And it is good for us to remember that this is inspired scripture. Because it's not just these knuckleheads in Ephesus who needed to be reminded again and again and again of the importance and the all-sufficiency of the gospel. It's us too. It's us too. It's inspired scripture. We need this reminder again and again as well, or else they wouldn't be there. All right, so obviously there's a problem in Ephesus Right? If you've been here at all for First Timothy, this is not new news to you. But let's look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And I love how each time he, he nuances it ever so slightly and, and words it a little bit differently each time. I guess because he's going to mention it so often. But here he's talking about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? These are his words. These are Jesus' words. This is what he proclaimed. This is what he accomplished. It belongs to him. And it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that accords with godliness, right? It's the only thing that will actually change our lives and conform us to his image and make us more godly, and make us more sanctified. So if that's the case, what in the world would cause these false teachers to not be content with that gospel and to turn somewhere else? There's a big clue in verse 4. When they do that, these false teachers are puffed up with conceit. These men are proud. These men are proud, and the gospel just does not jive with being proud. We've already seen that these men placed a lot of stock in self-effort as a means for godliness back in chapter 4, that they were all about suppressing appetites and abstaining from this and that, and that's how you become more godly. But that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Because the gospel message is actually very humbling. Because it's not about self-effort at all. It's all about Jesus' effort. See, there's no room in the gospel to feel accomplished or proud or puffed up with what you've been able to do. Because the core of the gospel message is you couldn't do anything. The core of the gospel message is the only thing that you bring to the table is your sin and your need. And so we're forced, the gospel forces us to say, I'm helpless. I'm a poor sinner in need of grace. And the gospel is just way too focused on Jesus' glory as the supplier of that grace for there to be any glory left for us. 
And these men in Ephesus weren't okay with that. And the question for us is, are we okay with that? Are we okay with the very humbling nature of the gospel? If you abandon the gospel for another means or another method, Paul has strong words for you like he had for these elders in Ephesus, verses 4 and 5. You understand nothing. If you go after a different doctrine, you are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. And the reason that Paul is so strong with his words is that the results of being discontent with the gospel, of abandoning it for something else, these results are disastrous. Not only will you not see in your life the godliness that he desires for you, You'll see this laundry list of negatives, unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. Right, interesting here that he's talking about quarrels here, particularly over words. Back in chapter 3, we had qualifications for elders. What was one of those? Not quarrelsome. Okay? This different doctrine is producing envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. There is nothing good that comes out of this. So are we content with the sound words of Jesus? Are we content with his gospel? Are we content with his means for change and transformation in our lives? One of the last reasons that Paul lists for the false teachers not being content has to do with our final point. See, they thought they could get rich doing what they were doing. They were imagining there, the end of verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. And they were right. Godliness is a means of, of gain. It's just not in the way that they were thinking. Because the gain, again, tied back to point one, the gain has to do with that eternal perspective that I was talking about. That's where the gain comes back in, is we're not thinking about this reality, we're thinking about that reality. The eternal reality. And so, once again, we're going to need an eternal perspective as it relates to wealth and riches. So our final point here this morning, are we content to live simply? So we've got verses 6 and 7. Let's look at those. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Right? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Right? It just wouldn't make any sense. And so Paul's, what Paul is saying here, it's just very practical and it's helpful and it's a good reminder. Thinking again in these two realities. Right? You might can amass stuff and money here, but guess what? It don't translate to eternity. There's no wire transfer. There's no FedEx. There's no delivery service that can get your stuff from here to eternity. It doesn't work. And so this important call for us comes in verse 8 then. If we have food and if we have clothing... 
With these we will be content. Interesting that what he mentions are the very two things that in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus mentions. He says, hey, don't worry about these two things. Right? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Consider the, the birds of the field. Yeah. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Consider those lilies. And so let's not stop short on, on these verses, right? Because we might be tempted to, to walk away from, from this verse, from these commands about being content and say, all right, I know I ought to try to live with less. I know I ought to be content. Oh, let me try to be content. There ain't no power in that. That's what those false teachers were trying to do anyway. Trying to abstain. Trying to suppress appetites. Right? So that's not where the power is. Let's look at Paul's stern warning here. Because he doesn't just stop with these simple instructions of, oh, you need to be content, be content. He gives a pretty stern warning about what's at stake if you're not. Uh, So let's make the problem a little bit worse and then we'll make it better. Verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what is so dangerous about the desire to be rich? What's so dangerous about it? Well, I think the first place that our minds go is, yeah, there's... There's a lot of bad stuff that you can do with your money, especially if you have lots of it, right? There there are pleasures that you can pursue, and there's decadence to be had. There is the amusing and the entertaining of ourselves to death almost. And those are real dangers. But quite frankly, I think for the majority of us in this room, We don't have that much money, right? We don't have so much money that that is our number one problem, I don't think, right? A lot of us in here are robbing Peter to pay Paul every month. So I don't know that we have enough money, most of us, to plunge ourselves into destruction. But these verses still apply very, very much so. Why do we desire to get rich? There was an advertising campaign back several years ago that I just loved. I thought it was very, very good when it came out. Except I don't remember what bank it was for, so I guess that's not good that I don't remember who who was doing the advertising. Um, But it was called Your Number. And you remember these? I've got a picture of one that I found. Yeah, you can kind of see that. These pictures were these big orange numbers, and they were walking around with them, and it was really awkward because they had these big orange numbers. It was like one point something million or two point something. And so the deal with your number is your number was the amount that you needed to have saved for retirement if you were going to be able to live the life that you wanted and not have any worries 
Everything was going to be peachy king. Well, then the economic downturn came in, you know, 06, 07, 08. And so they, they did another commercial with this number. And so they showed this guy walking around with his number, right? And uh, he's walking on a street, and then a bicyclist runs by and bumps it and knocks it out of his hand. And his number goes flinging into the street, and a bus runs over it, and all kinds of these bad things keep happening to his number. But then at the end of the day because I guess this bank was so good or whatever that he had his money invested in. He got home at the end of the day, set it up on the counter, hit two little buttons on it, and it opened up, and it was actually a number-shaped case that had been protecting his number all along. And so he can pull his, his number out of the case, and he's like, oh, things are good, right? No worries. Nothing to fear. I'm well taken care of. And I think that's our biggest danger. I think that's why for any of us in here, regardless of how big or small our number may be, that's our biggest danger. Is when we get to a point where it's not just that we don't have to worry, but that we don't have to trust. I think that's our biggest danger when it comes to, to money, to wealth, to riches. Is will we get to the place where we don't have to look any longer to our Father for our daily bread? Right? There's a reason the manna came one day at a time. There's a reason Jesus said, ask your Father for our daily bread. See, there was this consistent dependence that God planned for us. That we'd keep looking to Him. That we'd keep routinely trusting Him to provide and not the ability of our financial planner or the size of our number or how well protected it is. It's good to save. Right, saving isn't a bad thing. It, it's a it's a good, solid, biblical principle. Right, we should save. That's good. Right, but how much is enough? Is there ever an enough? And and so the call here is not for us to hunker down and try to say, oh, I need to be content. I'm going to try really, really hard to be content. But it is to come to a place through the gospel changing us and transforming us for us to come to a place where we really can say, all right, it's, it's enough. It's enough. And when the need hits, the Lord may use some of this that I've set aside to provide for me or He may do it in some other way. But it's enough. He's going to provide for me. And see, it goes back again to that eternal perspective. And it goes back again to Romans 8.32. Right? That if he didn't spare his own son, then how is he not going to meet me in all of this? How is he not going to meet me in my hard circumstance? How is he not going to meet me in my financial need? And think about that middle one even. Because if you look at Romans 8.32 in context... It's talking specifically there about our sanctification, 
right? It's talking about our election and predestination, all those wonderful things, because he's chosen us and he's predestined us, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Right, that's the whole goal. And then this verse comes on the, on the heels of that. He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for you. How will he not also, along with him, provide you everything that you need for your sanctification, for your hard circumstance, for your financial need? Let's pray. Father, grant to us the grace to believe you. to believe that you are in fact in control and good and loving. And I pray this morning, Father, that for all of us, you would take the truth of that Romans verse and you'd pound it down into our little stubborn and forgetful hearts. That you have taken care of our greatest need for all eternity. And so, of course, you're going to take care of the rest of our needs. Of course you are. Grant to us the faith to believe and to trust. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.